0: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoke and audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. at and
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God.
0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And I thought today we could talk about a tech company that has its headquarters in my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. Though that's not where our story will begin, and it's a company that, for the first few years of its existence, made customers get cozy with the following sound. Yep. That's the sound of a dial-up modem making a connection with another modem. And the company is Earthlink, which is very much an active company today, though that might surprise some of you who might think that it had its heyday and then just faded into obscurity. Nope, it's still here. I pass the building sometimes here in Atlanta. So we're going to learn about the history of Earthlink, what the company does, and we're going to learn a bit about how the internet works and dial-up modems as well, because heck, this is tech stuff. Also, because we're covering so much stuff, we're looking at a couple of episodes here. My favorite. But to tell the story of Earthlink, we'll also have to dive into a lot of other stuff to to really understand what's going on. So we're going to have, like I said, a refresher on how the internet works from a structural standpoint. I'm not going to get into protocols or any of that. But more of a high-level look and how the internet works. And we're going to understand what internet service providers do and why they're a necessity for, you know, the vast majority of us. And we'll also learn about a company that competed with Earthlink early on and why that company is the reason that Earthlink has its HQ in Atlanta. So this might take, you know, like I said, a couple of episodes to cover everything, but it's a great way to learn about the internet in general and the gradual shift to broadband methods of connecting to the internet. Now, our story begins in the 1970s with a fellow named Sky Dylan Dayton. I was going to make a Sky is the Limit joke here, but if you do even a cursory internet search for Sky Dayton, that's D-A-Y-T-O-N, you will see that I have been beaten by the punch by, hang on, let me check my notes, um, yeah, looks like everybody. So I'm going to spare you and Mr. Dayton the hacky pun this time. Dayton was born in 1971 in New York City. His family relocated to Los Angeles when he was a bebe, and his parents were both artists. His father, Wendell Dayton, was a sculptor, and his mother, Alice DeWitt, was a musician and poet. Alice's father, David DeWitt, was an IBM fellow and appointed position within IBM that marks distinguished achievement at the company. And so now we begin our tale. Sky's parents relocated from New York to Los Angeles in 1972, and they would divorce in 1975, and they shared custody of young Sky. Wendell Dayton took on jobs as a carpenter to earn money for Sky's education. And, side note, Wendell's story is actually a pretty incredible one. He made really interesting sculptures that were reflective of his time in New York City. They kind of grew out of artistic movements that were prevalent in New York City in the 70s and late 60s. But that unfortunately meant that they didn't really mesh with the artistic movements that were prevalent in Los Angeles. There was a different kind of uh, artistic philosophy in that part of the country. In addition, Wendell really hated submitting his art to galleries. He was reluctant to do it. It caused him a lot of anxiety. So... He largely went unrecognized for his work until he got a big break in 2018 when he was 80 years old, and a gallery held an exhibit that showed off his work from like six decades of his sculpture. He passed away in 2019. I can't find much information about Alice DeWitt, which really is a shame. I find references to her being a poet and a dancer in addition to being a musician, but it's hard to track down specifics and it's quite possible that I'm just looking in the wrong places. But I find it sad that I can't find out much about her as opposed to finding full articles about Wendell. As for David DeWitt, it's important to note this is not the same David DeWitt who is a pioneer with database technologies and is a technical fellow with Microsoft. The David DeWitt and Skye's family became an IBM fellow in 1970, and that timeline just doesn't work out with the Microsoft technical fellow, David DeWitt, who got his PhD in the mid-70s. I can't find much more information about David DeWitt, but I know that Skye Dayton has written about visiting his grandfather's office in Palo Alto, California as a child and being introduced to technology around that time. Not long after that visit with his grandfather, Sky got his first computer, which was a Sinclair ZX81. These computers came from Dundee, Scotland, and they were made by Timex, the watch company. Sky was nine years old at the time, so that puts this at around 1980. And honestly, I'm kind of shocked that that was his first computer. I would have pegged it as an Apple II being out of California in the early 80s, That would have been the right kind of timing for that to be the first computer, especially since the Sinclair computers were not nearly as well-known here in the States as they were in Europe. Anyway, back to our story. At some point in his childhood, Sky's parents enrolled him in the Delphian School, which is a private boarding school in Oregon. The school covers grades kindergarten through 12th, and they had fewer than 300 students. So the students would actually live at the school and go to school and stay there. And the school doesn't follow the same sort of curricula and structure as public schools in the United States from what I understand. It seems like students really stay on a subject until they have shown an understanding and mastery of that subject, rather than having to move on at a set time. So for example, if you were particularly strong in the field of algebra, you might complete that course before a school year is up, and then move on to the next course in mathematics. Or, flipwise, if you found it particularly challenging, you might just stick with algebra a little bit longer in order to reach that level of understanding. It wasn't like, at this arbitrary date, you must move on or be held back. Sky Dayton graduated from the Delphian School in 1988, and rather than apply to college, he decided to strike out into business. And one early entrepreneurial endeavor was a coffee shop and art gallery that he co-founded with a friend. The name of the shop was Cafe Mocha. In 1992, Dayton would co-found another business with a friend, a different friend, and this business was a design company that created graphics and layouts for advertising campaigns, and it was called Dayton Slash Walker Design. But something else was starting to consume Sky's attention. See, Sky wanted to connect to the internet. In the 1980s, there was a growing culture of bulletin board systems, or BBSs, and This is not internet, but it's similar, and here's how they would work. Someone would set up a computer to act as a bulletin board, to host the bulletin board. And it was kind of like a web server, except this approach had a computer standing as its own little island, and it would host stuff like message boards and maybe some files, and the BBS would have a specific phone number associated with it, or maybe a small bank of phone numbers and that would allow people to dial directly into the computer. So there are no other connections here. It's computer-to-computer connections. And computer owners with a dial-up modem would use their modem to call the BBS number. I'll get into the process of what happens with dial-up modems a little bit later in this episode, but essentially what happens is that the user and the BBS computer connect to each other, and then they can interact with the actual stuff that's on the BBS. By the early 1990s, we were starting to see this transition into actual internet services. Uh, The internet had already been a thing for a while, but only a small percentage of folks in the general population even knew about it. It was largely the domain, no pun intended, of academia and some research facilities, and then a few government divisions, particularly the military. And keep in mind that 1992 is when Tim Berners-Lee would... Uh, really start working on the earliest web pages. 1991 is typically when people say that he built the first one. So this is really pre-World Wide Web that hadn't really taken off yet. Rather than connect to the World Wide Web, people were using the internet to do stuff like send emails or use FTP, as in File Transfer Protocol, or maybe use Telnet, which is a way to create a virtual terminal connection between multiple machines for the purposes of text-based communication. The main method of connecting to these services was through dial-up modems but the process of connecting wasn't always a smooth one. The early online service providers and internet service providers were essentially working out the bugs in the system, and it often meant that it could take a long time to connect, or connections would drop, or sometimes you would lose stuff in mid-transfer. Online service providers like America Online, Prodigy, and CompuServe would allow users to access a suite of services and features that were contained within those services, but they had little or sometimes no access to the internet at large. So it was more like logging into a glorified bulletin board system, a big one, but one that still had barriers. And it usually meant that if you were a customer of one and your buddy was a customer of another one, you couldn't send messages to each other because you were confined by the barriers of that service. Internet service providers, which gave access to the internet at large, were not that common yet. Then there was The World, widely recognized as the first commercial ISP, not universally recognized as such, but there are a lot of people who argue it was, and that launched in 1989. There were a couple of others, but they were pretty limited, and Sky Dayton found the experience of connecting to the internet really irritating, and to make matters worse, the company he was using didn't have a good customer service department. This kind of got the wheels turning in Skye's head right around 1993. He started thinking about launching his own internet service provider company, and he wanted to have more of a focus on customer service. I think it's pretty obvious to say that creating an ISP is not a small endeavor, it's a big, big challenge. So Dayton sought out investors to help fund his venture, and he secured $100,000 from a pair of them, Kevin O'Donnell and Reed Slatkin in the process. O'Donnell still heads up major investment initiatives to this day, working with Adam Street. Slatkin, who passed away in 2015, became infamous for running one of the largest Ponzi schemes in history. Now, if you are not familiar with that term, A Ponzi scheme is a way of perpetuating a cycle of investments that is, in the long run, unsustainable. And I'll give you a very high level rundown on how it works. So let's say you're running an investment fund and you raise $100,000 from an initial round of investors using some sort of scheme. Doesn't matter what the scheme is, doesn't matter what you're telling people they're investing in. Maybe you've told everyone you're gonna sell marching band equipment to small towns in the Midwest. But you've got your initial investment of $100,000, and you start living high off the hog. You're spending money. But investors expect a return on the investments they put in, meaning you now have an obligation to try and not just pay them back, but pay them back on top of their investment to give them a profit, or at least make a payment to those investors. Except your whole scheme is faulty, either on purpose or just by circumstance. So instead, you hold a second round of investments. Let's say this time you're asking for $200,000. And you use some of that $200,000 to pay off at least part of your first round of investors to kind of get them off your back. Meanwhile, you keep living high on the hog, you're still spending lots of money, but hey, Now you owe money to that second round of investors, and potentially you still owe some money to the first round. So then you hold another round of investment, this time maybe for a million dollars, and so on and so forth. And as you see, the scheme tends to get bigger over time, and eventually you hit a point where you're just not going to be able to keep up with it, and it all comes crashing down. Now to really learn about this scheme and why it's called a Ponzi scheme, I highly recommend you check out a classic Stuff You Should Know episode titled How Ponzi Schemes Work. It published originally way back in 2009. It is a fantastic episode. Slatkin was running one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in history, and many of his victims were celebrities. Slatkin was also a member of the Church of Scientology with more than a few of his marks, his targets, also being fellow members. But hey, members of Scientology were used to handing over enormous amounts of cash to someone else. Now to learn more about that, I recommend checking out the podcast Scientology Fair Game. It's incredibly well done, and also, just a trigger warning, has a lot of really upsetting stuff in it. Slatkin had been part of Scientology since the 1970s. So in retrospect, Slatkin's involvement with the early days of Earthlink is kind of a shameful past sort of thing, though I suspect at the time no one really knew about this particular MO of his. He wasn't found out and prosecuted by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, until 2001 and whether earned honestly or through deception, Slack can put forward some of the seed money that Dayton needed to get things moving. Dayton would start Earthlink in California. Now, according to Wired, the company initially offered connections to the internet at large through one of its 10 modems. That's one zero, that's all he had. This was inherently different from online service providers like Prodigy or AOL, which, again, were mostly confining you to the OSP's own self-contained network. One of the big limitations of those OSPs, as I mentioned, is that you couldn't communicate between two of them, typically. There were some that would make arrangements with one another, but it meant that they had limited utility unless everyone you knew happened to be on the same OSP. The internet really offered up a new opportunity to connect people and services, no matter what network they were on, assuming that network was in turn connected to the internet itself and wasn't restricting access. That promise of the internet, that ability to connect to practically limitless people and services, would become a driving force for development in the 1990s. It got a big boost starting in 1993 with the introduction of the Mosaic browser and the early days of the World Wide Web. And so Earthlink launched in 1994, along with a few other competing ISPs, some of which came out before Earthlink, some that came out around the same time, a couple that followed immediately after, and then after that, there was an explosion Among those was another important ISP in our story called MindSpring. When we come back, I'm going to cover some early internet history and the roles of ISPs in those early days so that we get an understanding of what exactly the business here was. But first, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Alright, we need to get an understanding of how the internet works to grasp why internet service providers are even a thing. I mean, after all, shouldn't you just be able to connect right to the internet and just skip that whole ISP thing? Well, let's get it sorted. But let me give you a warning. There are actually a lot of different ways to describe how the internet works, even if you're doing it from a very high level. So this is just one way to describe the relationship of various uh, entities that are part of the internet. So the first thing we need to establish is that the internet is a network of networks. They are frequently referred to as autonomous systems or ASs. So network and autonomous system are essentially synonymous. So a network is really a bunch of interconnected devices that can communicate with one another, either directly in dedicated lines of communication or through various communication hubs. So you've got your computers, some of which are servers, some of which are clients. You've got your physical lines of communication, because we're going to skip over things like Wi-Fi for right now. And you've got your switches and your routers that make sure that the proper connections form between machines. So... When someone on computer A sends something to someone on computer B, the switches and routers make sure that the data from A goes to B and not to, say, computer F or every computer on the system. You can have a network like this be completely self-contained. It does not have to be part of the internet. But you could connect it to other networks. Like, you could have these networks then connect to multiple other networks. However, as new networks join up and establish connections to yet more networks, things start getting exponentially more complicated. If you are starting up a brand new computer network, establishing a direct line of communication with every other computer network that exists would be practically impossible, right? I mean, maybe in the very early days of the commercial internet, you could manage this if you had enough resources. But today, it would be, almost impossible to do. Over time, we saw the development of what we would call the internet backbone. Now this describes a sort of nexus of data routes, uh, all the physical cables, the switches, the routers, through which data can travel to get from one network to another. The early origins of the backbone date to the days when the internet was almost exclusively the domain of the academic world. The National Science Foundation in the United States, a.k.a. the NSF, was instrumental in creating a major foundation for this backbone. Until 1989, all of the data traveling across the NSF net was from universities and research facilities. There was no commercial connection to the internet over the NSF uh, net at this point. And here's where things really got complicated. See, the NSFnet was one network, but telecommunications companies were starting to build out their own networks, including those physical connections that link networks together. First, they did so internally so that you had like the AT&T internal network. And then later, they started to connect with each other so that they could do data exchanges. NSFnet agreed to carry commercial traffic across its network connections to deliver to other networks. So it was acting as a conduit, which would allow customers of network one communicate and send files or receive files from people using you know, network number two. And it was the birthplace of the internet backbone. The big telecommunications companies, building out their own miles of cable with switches and routers, were creating kind of their own backbones, but these would become interconnected with the infrastructure of NSFNet and other big companies, and thus making the backbone more robust. You can think of it as just a bunch of cables all twisting together to form an extra thick cable. And there was a clear benefit to interconnecting these networks with one another. But there was also the question of how would these interconnections work from a business perspective? Building out infrastructure costs a lot of money, and those components have limitations on how much data they can handle at one time, as well as how an increasingly large demand for services can cause congestion through a network. So there were questions about how networks would handle the exchange of data between one network and another. And we historically described these networks that connect to one another in the form of tiers. That's T-I-E-R. So a tier one network is really large Uh, typically a global reach network that's interconnected and it serves as part of the key components of the internet backbone. Uh, Just so you know, the definitions for the different tiers are a little bit loosey-goosey, but essentially a tier one network does not have to pay for the privilege of sending data to or receiving data from other networks. It's called peering. A tier two network has to pay for some transit privileges. In other words, it has to pay some other networks for the uh, privilege of being able to transfer data between the two, but it has agreements in place with a lot of other networks where it's the same sort of thing of peering, where it doesn't have to make those, those transit payments. Then you have tier three networks, which do not have that level of clout. They have to pay those transit fees. So let's say you've got a tier one network, like AT&T. AT&T's network consists of millions and millions and millions of devices, including web servers, network switches, cables, traffic routers. This network is really huge. And if you've got two computers that are on the AT&T network, and all the connections between those two computers are essentially on AT&T's network, then you've got an intra-network connection going on. Doesn't matter if they're across the country from each other. If it's on that one network, the data never actually has to leave the provenance of AT&T, in theory anyway. But let's say that you're on a device that connects to AT&T's network, and you want to connect to a server that's on a different tier one network, like one that's on Lumen Technologies' network any data exchange is going to have to pass from one network to another. So if you think of network connections like private roads, you're talking about going from one private community into another private community. But there's a lot of traffic that goes back and forth between these two huge entities. And figuring out how to charge for that would be a nightmare, particularly since you could see big shifts in the direction of data flow. And usually it all comes out as a wash anyway, with each network owing pretty much the same amount to the other network. And so these tier one networks have established these agreements called peering agreements, with other tier one networks. And what these agreements say essentially is that, yeah, I'll accept data from your network on my lines if you do the same for me, and we'll call it even Steven. To be a tier one, you've got to be big with a global or nearly global reach. And that's that sort of access is, is, is way too grand for most networks. Tier two networks typically have a, a large reach, though not necessarily a global one. And they can have peering agreements with other Tier 2 networks, creating, you know, regional access points. So in this case, if Tier 2 Network A and Tier 2 Network B are both connected to a regional access point, the same one, data can travel up from a user on Network A upstream to that regional access point, cross over to network B and go downstream to a target computer, and there's no need for the data to go all the way up to the backbone in that case. But let's say you've got tier two network C, and it's not connected to that same regional access point. Well, in that case, the data from network A has to travel upstream beyond that regional access point, further up the chain to the internet backbone, then back down the backbone into network C and down to the destination. And there could be transit fees associated with that because the tier two network has to interface with the tier one networks that are associated with the backbone. But hey, there's more. We've got tier three networks as well. Now these include smaller, typically local ISPs like Earthlink, These companies connect up to another network, either Tier 2 or Tier 1, and they have to pay for the privilege to do so. In return, the Tier 3 network can send data to and receive data from anywhere else on the internet. And the way that they pass that cost on is through the subscription services to the customers. And the reason you need an ISP is that you, as an individual, can't really go to a Tier 2 or a Tier 1 network and negotiate a direct connection to that network and transit fees so that you can tap into their physical infrastructure to operate across the internet. At least you can't do that unless you have what is known in the technical world as a metric crap ton of money. Now, if you do have a metric crap ton of money, you might be able to manage it, but it would be wicked expensive. So the ISPs serve as a liaison between the end customer, whether it's a business or someone like me or you, and the infrastructure of the internet at large. The rates you pay your ISP might partly go to costs like transit fees if your ISP is tier two or lower, and it could also go to funding more infrastructure in the future. Or hey, it might just go to boosting profits and making shareholders happy. Let's be honest, a lot of the money is going to that. This arrangement shook out over the early years of the internet. It wasn't something that was planned out from the beginning. This had to form organically over those early years. And things were still kind of in flux when Earthlink launched in 1994. The company's 10 modems would accept incoming calls from customers and then connect them with a network access point further upstream to tap into the internet at large. Earthlink charged customers a fee to access the service and part of Earthlink's costs included those transit fees that it provided in return for access to the internet. And while we're on the subject of technical discussions, remember when I played that modem sound at the beginning of the show? You know, this one? What the heck does that sound mean? Well, let's go through it a bit by bit. Now, the very first sound we hear is the modem effectively activating the phone line. It's as if you were to pick up a, uh, a landline in any location. You start to hear the ringtone. Then we hear the modem dial a number, That number corresponds with whatever service you're dialing into. It could be a BBS, in which case you're dialing direct into a modem that connects to the BBS administrator's computer, or you could be dialing into an ISP, which then completes the connection to the internet at large. Next follows that weird series of noises, and here's where things get pretty interesting. Computers are digital. They run on binary signals, which consist of zeros and ones, the old off and on switch. And you can think of a binary signal as really a bunch of discrete binary values. It's not like a sine wave. It's a bunch of zeros and ones, so it looks more like little stair steps than uh, and, and flat planes and things like that rather than a, a curved line that is unbroken. But communication over phone lines is analog, not binary, not digital. So the phone converts sound waves into an electrical signal with varying voltage, uh, which is a constant signal, not a set of discrete values. And then the phone at the other end of the phone call takes this electric signal with varying voltage and converts it back into sound. Now I'm not gonna go into all of that and how that works because it's not important for our discussion, and I've also covered it in other episodes. But the modem's purpose is to take the digital signals of the computer and convert them into something that can pass through an analog transmission line. So it modulates the signal, encoding it as sound, which in turn gets converted into the electrical signal with varying voltage. A modem on the opposite end receives this modulated signal and demodulates it back into binary digital information. Years later, the FCC in the United States began to work on the transition of shutting down the analog phone network, which was largely obsolete. But at this point in the early 90s, it still was very much a thing. Okay, so getting back to the sound of the modem, the next couple of weird tones we hear represents that the two modems in question are agreeing on what speed they can actually work together in order to do the next couple of steps. So they're setting the ground rules of how quickly they can go back and forth with each other. So in the good old days, you had modems with different amount uh, of information that could be sent by that modem per second. Oh, hey, it's future Jonathan breaking into this episode to fix something that I said when I first recorded this particular episode, that was wrong. So here's what I did say. I said that when Earthlink launched, the standard modem speed at the time was 56 kilobits per second. That part isn't correct, but it gets worse. But at the time that Earthlink launched, the fast consumer modems that were on the market were capable of handling data at 28.8 kilobits per second. Those were the, the fastest ones that were available at the time which is not fast by modern standards. And these were 3200 baud modems. And when I first sat down to record this episode, I made a common mistake, which was that I talked about baud and bits per second as if they are the same thing, and they are not. So if you hear someone say a modem is 2400 baud, this does not mean that the modem transmitted data at 2.4 kilobits or 2400 bits per second. In fact, 2400 baud modems had a range of speeds from 9.6 kilobits per second all the way up to 19.2 kilobits per second. There were old modems that did top out at 2400 bits per second, but they were not 2400 baud modems. They were actually either 600 baud or 1200 baud modems. So remember, baud and bits per second are different. Also, while the top consumer modems of the time could reach speeds of 28.8 kilobits per second, it was possible to lease phone lines, companies could do this, and achieve speeds of up to 56 kilobits per second but consumer modems would not reach those speeds until the late 1990s. As you listen to the rest of this episode, I might trip up a bit on that, but I wanted to use this opportunity to address a goof that I made early on. Anyway, at this point in the modem noise sequence, the two modems are figuring out what speed they can communicate so that they can set the rest of the rules. All right, pass Jonathan, take it away. The next few signals are a handshake between the two modems that set various parameters that dictate stuff like the data bit number and parity between the two modems. To get into all of that would be very technical. We're just going to skip over it. Essentially, it's the rules by which the two modems will follow as they exchange information. Then there's a rate negotiation for how fast the modems will actually allow data to travel between them. And then the two modems establish a connection that allows for simultaneous communication, which means the modems can both send and receive data on the same line at the same time. Assuming all that goes well, the connection is accepted, and you finally hear the sound of actual throughput between the two modems before your modem speaker switches off so you don't have to hear it the whole time you're on the internet. Okay, that took a while, But I felt it was necessary to understand Earthlink's business. When we come back, we'll pick back up with Earthlink. But first, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber. Live like a Gaginian. There. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and hypergig for details.
0: Now, as I mentioned, when Earthlink launched in 1994, the internet was in a rapid growth period and stuff like transit fees and peerage was still shaking out. Dayton's determination to have an ISP with good customer service proved to be a popular notion and his little company began to grow steadily. In 1995, Earthlink and the newly formed Netscape Communications Corporation signed a deal that would really help out. Like Earthlink, Netscape had launched in 1994. It had also introduced the Mosaic Netscape browser, which quickly became the dominant web browser on the market, though we should also remember this was a very small market by today's standards. Subsequently, the company would name the browser Netscape Navigator, and it was a commercial web browser, meaning customers would need to pay for it in order to install it on their machines or... As was the case with Earthlink, uh, another company like an ISP could purchase a license to offer the browser on either machines or installation software that customers would then use. So you could be a computer manufacturer and make this deal, an OEM in other words, and then sell the computers to customers and it would already have Netscape Navigator on it. Or if you were Earthlink, you would offer up an installation CD that would include the Netscape Navigator browser to make it really easy to connect to the World Wide Web, and Earthlink. Meanwhile, on the infrastructure side, Earthlink made a really shrewd move. Rather than building out banks of telephones connected to various telephone company networks across the United States, which would have been an administrative and, and maintenance nightmare to oversee... Instead, Earthlink leased capacity from existing networks. And a lot of these were networks that were stuff that wasn't handling your, your standard phone conversation communications. They were instead networks that were dedicated to stuff like verifying credit card transactions. So Earthlink would lease those lines to serve as connection points for the internet, for their customers, routing incoming calls from customers to available leased lines on these other companies. And because the lines actually belonged to another company, Earthlink wasn't the one responsible to keep up with maintenance on an increasingly complicated network. They were using existing infrastructure that otherwise was being dormant. Earthlink also signed an agreement with a company called UUNet Technologies. UUNet was one of the first ISPs, having been founded in 1987, so two years before commercial internet traffic actually started crossing the NSFnet backbone. It was also one of the Tier 1 networks, having built out a considerable infrastructure early on in the internet days. UUNet was one of the largest and fastest-growing ISPs in the world. Earthlink's agreement meant that Earthlink would connect customers to UUNet phone lines. The agreement meant that Earthlink could sign up customers for service and give those customers UUNet dial-up numbers, and in return, Earthlink would pay UUNet a fee to access that dial-up number bank, and this dramatically increased Earthlink's reach, as UUNet had access points across nearly 100 cities in the United States, while Earthlink was still physically really a, a regional ISP mostly rooted out of the West Coast. UUNet, by the way, has its own fascinating and complicated history, as it would go through a series of mergers and acquisitions over the years, and ultimately it would end up with Verizon. That's a story for a different podcast. Oh, and Earthlink also did something that really resonated with its customers. So in the early days of the internet, and this was back from the BBS days, the standard practice was for a company like an OSP or an ISP to charge customers two fees. The first fee was a recurring service fee, like a monthly fee. That's what gave customers access to the provider's services. But then there was a second fee, usually an hourly fee. And the more time a customer spent connected to a service each month, the higher this fee would be. Now in part, this was a measure to help deal with the potential problem of traffic congestion. If a service became really popular, the the demand for those services could outstrip its capacity. So if you've got 10 phone lines and 12 people all wanna connect to the internet at the same time, you got a problem. So putting in an hourly fee would both maximize the revenue you were bringing in and act as a sort of limiting factor for individuals so that one person wouldn't take over an entire line by themselves. You know, like log into the service and just never log out. Well, that would be prohibitively expensive with the hourly fee, so that helped prevent that from happening. So it was both for a traffic management purpose and a revenue generating purpose, and customers hated it because it meant feeling like you were paying for the same thing twice. Earthlink changed that by introducing a flat fee for its service. So customers would pay $19.95 per month to Earthlink. And in return, they could access the service whenever they wanted for as long as they wanted with no hourly fees. Earthlink could do this because of those relationships that the company had been making with other telecommunications companies and other ISPs. As long as Earthlink's capacity to make connections through its partners was ahead of demand, the flat fee would work just fine. By 1996, Earthlink was really taking off. And that's when Sky Dayton would step down as CEO. He stayed on board as the chairman of Earthlink, but the new CEO was Charles Gary Betty. And while this isn't an episode about Dayton himself, I do find it interesting that Dayton has a bit of a history of founding companies, getting them up and running, and on the precipice of becoming, you know, truly huge. And then he steps back, and then he does it all over again with a new company. And he reminds me of several other entrepreneurs who really excel in getting business ideas off the ground, but then they prefer to step away to launch something else that's new because that's their real strong suit. And they'll hand the reins over to a different leader in order to foster the company into its next phase. So that was uh, Gary Betty's role. When Gary Betty took over, Earthlink had around half a million subscribers. It was still largely considered a regional ISP, but under Betty's leadership, Earthlink would expand dramatically, and that would include scooping up other regional ISPs to extend its own reach, and it would have more than 5 million customers by 2007. He also oversaw Earthlink's transition from a private company into a publicly traded one. Earthlink would hold its initial public offering in 1997. Sadly, 2007, Gary Betty would pass away at the age of 49 after he developed cancer. And I'm sure we're going to cover more of Gary Betty's contributions in part two of this series. But it's time to switch gears for just a second. Now, I haven't really mentioned Atlanta since the beginning of this episode. And yet, Earthlink has its headquarters in Atlanta today. And the reason for that lies with the totally different internet service provider company I mentioned earlier, MindSpring. The history of Earthlink and the history of MindSpring are very much tied together as later down the road, the two merge. So I thought I would end this episode by talking a little bit about MindSpring's story. The company's founder was Charles Brewer. Unlike Sky Dayton, Brewer went to university. He earned an MBA at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, in fact. But like Dayton, Brewer encountered frustrations when he tried to connect to this newfangled thing called the internet back in the early 90s. And like Dayton, his solution was to found a company that would facilitate internet connections and remove those frustrations. So he founded MindSpring as a result. And reportedly, in those early days, his company had only eight modems. And for the first four months of its operation, it didn't even charge its customers. It also shared staff and equipment with another ISP called Internet Atlanta. By mid-1994, Mindspring transitioned into a model that would charge customers, so now it actually had a way of making revenue. It had worked out the various kinks during those first four months of you know, the technical aspects of being an ISP. Mindspring had a reputation for having a really relaxed company culture, with like no corporate dress code. Employees were encouraged to be creative with their workspaces. The descriptions I've read of Mindspring make me think of the dot com startups that would pop up in the years following with companies like spending a lot of time and attention and money on creating really interesting workspaces. That's what MindSpring makes me think of. And like Earthlink, MindSpring would form partnerships with various parties to extend its reach, its service, and and to grow very quickly. And it would boost that by acquiring other companies, mostly small regional ISPs like NandoNet out of North Carolina. ISPs were popping up all over the place. There'd be thousands of them over the next few years, almost 10,000 by the time we get to the late 90s. And MindSpring, having a head start and a good amount of cash due to early investors and a popular service was buying them up whenever it could. Now on past episodes of Tech Stuff, I've talked about how some companies expand by building out their services into new regions into new territories, into new kinds of business, like physically investing and building that stuff out. To do that is challenging, it is expensive, it is risky. But another way to expand very quickly is to just acquire other companies that already have a presence there, including competitors. And this is how companies like Comcast were able to grow so quickly. It wasn't that Comcast was laying cable to new communities. It was that Comcast was buying up local cable companies and then merging them into Comcast's overall business. MindSpring was effectively doing the same thing, largely in the southeastern United States. MindSpring became a publicly traded company in 1996, so one year before Earthlink would do the same. By 1999, the various mergers and acquisitions meant MindSpring had a total of more than 1 million subscribers in the United States. And it was in late 1999 that MindSpring and Earthlink announced an intention for the two companies to merge into a new single company. This company would keep the Earthlink name, but it would have its headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. So the MindSpring headquarters would become the Earthlink headquarters. The MindSpring stock symbol of MSPG would phase out, and the new company would have the trading symbol ELNK for Earthlink. The combined company would be one of the largest ISPs in the world when the merger was complete. The second largest, in fact, just behind America Online, which had pivoted from being an online service provider to a true internet service provider. In our next episode, we'll learn more about Earthlink's fate in the 2000s, how DSL and cable would change the game, and what would lead various news outlets to proclaim that Earthlink was dead in 2016. Newsflash, it's not dead. I guess it was only mostly dead, because it's still around today. But that will wait for the next full Tech Stuff episode. Now remember, tomorrow's episode, we're going to have another dollop of tech news. I'm gonna give you a quick rundown of some of the headlines of what's going on in tech today. Join me then, and if you have a suggestion for topics that I should cover on future Tech Stuff episodes, whether they're a specific technology, a company, a person, or maybe a trend in tech or anything like that, reach out to me. The best way is to use Twitter. The handle is techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon.